Hey everyone, we've got a pretty awesome show today. I've got uh, my best buddy Kevin Kowalik here on the show. We've been uh, friends since we were about six years old. Went through elementary school together, high school together, um, did competitive kickboxing, raced mountain bikes, cycling, uh, adventure racing, uh, half marathons, all that kind of awesome stuff. Uh, we were best men at each other's weddings and um, it's been awesome to, to kind of grow up um, alongside someone and have a lot of the same same goals and, um, you know, just having fun training together and doing different things and then seeing someone uh, make it to uh, a really, really high level in sport. Kevin went to the 2012 uh, London Olympics as a rower, so he was in the double skulls and um, kind of wanted to talk to him about his experience with it. Um, you know, kind of what he learned from it, what he learned about himself and, um, just, just the experience. So not a lot of people get to get to experience that sort of thing. And it was something that I was hoping that he would be able to, to share with, uh, some of our viewers. Uh, this is a two part episode, so, um, I really hope that you enjoy it. And, um, yeah, if you have any questions for part two, send them out to us. All right. And, uh, I think we should get started. Yeah, without further ado, here is Mr. Mr. Kevin Kowalik. Um, Kevin, how are you doing today? Oh, just lovely. Just lovely. He's like clutching his coffee right now and just like, why am I even here? So, um, so just to start things off, Kevin, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, who are you right now? Well, I'm um, a married uh, new father of uh, a lovely 19 or nine months uh, girl. Uh, I work as an engineer. Um, yeah, basically just a boring individual. <laughs> that's it, just a boring individual. All right. Well, that's, I love that. That's a great intro. Um, so <laughs> anything else to add to that? Kevin's, Kevin's probably one of the most dedicated individuals I know when it comes to, uh, when it comes to st- to training, he's. Uh, I remember having a conversation with him once in uh, Riding Mountain. We were doing the MS bike tour. Um, we did that for almost ten years together, and um, we were we were walking to get some cinnamon buns, and uh, I was talking about like being a type personality and that. And he's like, "Well, wh- what's that?" And so I explained it to him, like just very particular about everything, and kind of like OCD about uh, about you know, if you're training or whatever, he's like, I'm more that than you are. I'm like, yes, yes, you are, Kev. So (laughs) do you remember that? Honestly, I think we were riding down Henderson when we had that conversation. No, I remember it was going to, going to get cinnamon buns. I'm still more that than you. I know, I know. So I think pretty much whatever, whatever you do in your life, you're pretty much all in plus. So, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool to see. Um, so, so you started rowing at a a later age than most would to be highly competitive in the sport of rowing. So, uh, why did you start rowing and what made you fall in love with it? I, um, when I graduated high school, I was about 300 pounds and I, through deciding to change my life, I decided to become healthier, started working out obsessively, um, lost the weight almost instantly and, uh, kept being active with hockey and kickboxing with you. Um, about six or seven years later, I went headfirst into the boards in hockey. 
and couldn't feel my arms or legs when I came to and never was so scared of my life. After getting checked out of the hospital, they said, you know, don't get hit in the head for a while. I still had a burning desire to be active and uh, deathly afraid of putting the weight back on. And the easiest sport to do at the time seemed like to try something like rowing. So when I went down to the club, there was a bunch of girls in spandex. Um, so I came back. Good motivation for you. <laughs> yeah, it was never, it was just about staying fit and staying healthy. And when I went rowing, you could see people 80 years old still doing the sport. And there's not many sports that have that longevity or lifespan with people. So it seemed like something I could make a, a positive change for a long time. So then did you did you pick it up really quick? Did you like did they they didn't start you in the water right away? Like what was your what was your first experience? You're like, hey, I'm gonna try this new sport. Um, let's see how it goes. I, I think the first time I went out in a boat, I uh I don't know, I guess I got a little chip on my shoulder. So I was gonna I was gonna pull that boat along as hard as I could until the, the girl behind me tapped me on the shoulder and suggested I was rowing backwards. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I was, um, I think I was the worst one out there. I was even told I was uncoachable at one point because <laughs> no matter what stroke I was doing, it was, it was everything I got, whether or not it was right or wrong. And <laughs> Rowing is a little bit more of a finesse sport where you have to maybe first learn the technique, then add the power. And, <laughs> even, yeah. on, even on the erg inside, right? <laughs> well, that's, that's different. I, uh, I think I hold the record still for flipping the training double the most times. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much a canoe that's unflippable unless you're me. <laughs> yeah. No, it was bad. Bad start. <laughs> so then what, what kept you motivated to keep going back and trying? Was it that you, you know, weren't good at it? Was that what, what kind of kept you going? Honestly, I started with three other guys and I was the oldest, so I wasn't um, eligible for a lot of the competitions and I was also the worst so I would get very little attention, and these other guys were kind of the stars. And um, that spite kind of fueled me. Like, just because they were getting the attention, I was going to make sure I could beat them. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, um, so you, you ended up going... Um, uh, I won't jump to that part, but we'll just say that... Uh, What's the difference between the the double skulls, the doubles? Tell us a little bit about the sport of rowing. Like, there's the eights, which you always you know see at the Olympics. There's how many different categories are there? There's quite a few, aren't there? <laughs> um, for all the time I spent rowing, I, I can't say I actually like watching sports, or I don't really dive into sports. So, um, the number of boats—that's kind of a hard one. I think they've changed it. Um, but the difference, right off the hop, there's two categories. There's sculling and sweeping. Um, sculling, you have an oar in each hand, and you can do uh, with a single, a double, or a quad. So one, two, or four people. Um, and then the other one is sweeping, where it's you only have one oar, and you rely on your partner or crewmate to support the other side of the boat. And that's done in pairs, fours, and eights. So I guess that's... Eight categories? Yeah. Okay. Well, and then there's singles too. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you, you're not, uh, you're not sweeping in a single. <laughs> you just go around in circles, wouldn't you? Well, 
you, you rely on your partner to support you in the pair. If you only yeah. had one oar, you're, you're probably most likely going for a swim. Okay. So how hard was it to work with someone if you were doing like the if you were doing pairs like sweeping versus sculling? Uh, so when I trained here in Winnipeg, I was almost exclusively a single due to my age and lack of ability. Um, the coach told me that he wasn't in good conscience going to boat me with anyone. So if I wanted to continue rowing, I need to get a single. So I went out and bought a single. And if I'm going to pay that money, I'm going to use that single. <laughs> so by like, the, How much is a rowboat for, for just so people know? Uh, my used rowboat cost me about 6000 And then a new one, I think, is currently around eleven or 12000 And that's, that's not including like oars and all that kind of stuff too, right? Well, oars are cheap. They're like oh. 600 bucks only. That's it. Yeah. Each. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, yeah, when I went out west, I really didn't know how to sweep. But the benefit to sculling and being in a boat by yourself is you know what you're doing. So you get a certain amount of body awareness or boat awareness that transfers very quickly to sweep or being with a partner. It doesn't work that well the other way. If you're in a big boat with eight people, sometimes you just you don't even realize what you're doing because someone else is always compensating. So, so what's it? You've been in the boat. You've done fours, right? Have you done been in the eight? I did multiple training sessions. The eight. I never competed internationally in an eight. Okay. And then, uh, so what about the fours? I know there's. Was it that picture? You have a picture like in your living room where like you're all slumped over in the the boat in the four. Yeah, that was uh, the World Championships in 2011, where we qualified for the Olympics. That's cool. Yeah, that's a good picture. No, no one's faces are visible. Everyone's like slumped over in the boat. It's a really, really cool picture. You might have to like post it with this. But um, so, with um, did you know that when you started rowing that you wanted to go to the Olympics with it, or like how did how did that all come about? So you started out, you you know, you weren't the the athlete with the most finesse, and uh, like how, how did how did going to the Olympics happen? <laughs> Well, after I started rowing and I had to beat the guys that were getting more attention and coaching, um, that was pretty much the limit of my aspirations. I then met a guy who had won Canadian Henley in the dash, and that seemed like a ridiculous thing, so I made it my goal to at least attend Canadian Henley once. And for some reason, I managed to squeak out a win there on my first go at it. And then... I don't know, it, it felt like my goals were over, so then it was just back to fitness until uh, I found myself back in school at 29 years old and thought, um, hey, I got a scheme, I'll go run off and join the national team for rowing, and for every year you're on the team, they'll pay for a year of school. So I figured this, this should be a good scheme, I'll just uh, you know fake it and uh, get my school paid for. Fake it until you make it. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, apparently there's no faking it when you're at that level. Um, you're either all in or you're out. And yeah, it was just too much fun, too many new guys to try to catch or beat or yeah. Cool. Just more spite. <laughs> so so when did when did that change happen? So how long did it take, you know, when you were into the sport until you realized like, hey, I've got some good potential? Or did a coach come up to you and say that? Or was it just your results that were that were kind of showing, that were kind of leading you down that path? 
Well, it was really the the Hanley win in which, at the time, was um, very anticlimactic because in my mind I was going there just to try it out and see how much more I had to progress. And my goal was just to make the semifinal, like just to get through the first level of cuts. And there I was walking away with uh, this massive trophy. So from there, it I realized I may have an aptitude for the sport, but I also had a full-time job that wouldn't allow me to go to the next level. And there really, there really isn't much beyond Canadian Henley for rowers unless they want to quit and go full-time training for the national team. Hmm. All right, and we'll get to that after. So so what was your training like here in Winnipeg? So while you were chasing your goal, um, like, you know, you like you said, you were working full time. Um, what, you know, what was your day like? What was your routine like? Oh, it was great. I would wake up at like 530, um, head over to the club, push off at 6 a.m., do an hour and a half hard workout, you know, like when that stomach, when your stomach's burning, like shut her down and... You're just dripping sweat, and the sun would peak out right around the time you got to St. Patel Bridge, and just the sun rays would just heat you right through, and it, oh, such a great feeling. And then you'd get away, you'd put away your boat, your muscles were just finished, and you go take a shower at, you know, 7.30, 7.45, and you'd get to work for 8.30. You'd do a full day work, get back to the club at, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock, push off. I was always late. That was another problem. So <laughs> they pushed off at 4.30, but I didn't get there till 5. Uh, race to the start. You'd have to go catch up then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much totally forego the warm-up. Just sprint <laughs> to where they all started and uh, start doing pieces until, you know, you're blue in the face. And then uh, go home, eat, go back to bed. Wake it's a great up, life. do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's routine. It's really simple and it uh it puts things in perspective to some extent so then with um what what was the training like in winter i'm sure because it's a little different here in in winnipeg than it might be in victoria but um yeah what was the what was the winter training like not much different we still would do the morning sessions uh go down to the club and they have rowing machines um and you would do great pieces like I don't know. You you put your folks on the rowing machine. There's there's not much out there that can make you uh, totally exhausted and puking any quicker than that thing. Like, yeah. You really learn your limits. Yeah. And then same thing. Go to work. And then I actually bought a rowing machine for my basement and would just put in a movie and do about an hour of just low intensity watching a movie and uh, stroking it. Hmm. I'm not going to ask what kind of movie. Um, so, so say if you're doing that, um, were you focusing on, were you just putting in the work, building up some aerobic capacity, or were you always trying to stay at a certain pace per 500 meters, or like what were you, just get on and row, or what? I would always set a split or a, a wattage or intensity, and I have this nasty habit of rounding down, so or rounding up, depending on how you look at it. So if I said I'm going to pull, you know, 375 watts for this hour, well, anything below 375 was a loss. So by the end, the average would end up being somewhere around 408 or 409 where, you know. That's, so, that's watts per hour? I think it's like instantaneous average. watts. Okay. But, yeah, in the end, if you pull So on average, it would yeah. be 400 plus. Okay. 
But the other one would be um, there was always at least one technique that whether it's sitting up straighter or pulling lower or the sequencing of legs, back arms, there was always something to work on technically on the rowing machine that, yeah, like none of the movements came natural to me. I was pretty brutal. So then what, what got you, if none of it came naturally, like what, what got you, you know, good enough to compete at that high level? Was it just grit and determination or was it, cause you're, you're a pretty strong dude. Not strong like these guys. Um, not to toot my own horn. I think it was more of the mental side that allowed me to progress. Um, because nothing came naturally and everything was learned, I could also quickly adapt to new techniques because nothing was natural. Everything was forced. No. So all of a sudden I could force something new fairly easily. That helped. Um, also, I hate to lose. So I could always seem to shift another gear and... <laughs> Just go out, go harder and explode. Nice. Well, that's always helpful having that uh, having that that mental aspect and and just being driven to you know not uh, not come in second, <laughs> whatever. I know um, I kind of I don't have that mentality when it comes to training and competing. I'm more of like just do the absolute best you can, and you know what if if you know, that's how you, you feel like you put everything out there when you finish, then, you know, be happy with that. And I know, um, some people aren't, aren't like that. You're, you're probably not like that much. <laughs> yeah. Bare minimum, just not to come in second. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, was, was resistance training, um, a big part of your training for rowing or did that, you know, did, did you spend much time doing that? Uh, before I joined the national team, um, the coach told me if I can do one session a day, make it on the water. If I can do two sessions a day, make it on the water. If I can do three sessions a day, the third one can be on the rowing machine. Now, if I can do four sessions, that could be weights. Yeah. Um, so I took that to heart, and I just made my second session the very long movie session on the rowing machine during the winter uh, so there wasn't a lot of weights. I'd never, it was never a problem of putting on weight or strength for me. It was more of a getting off the fat, getting off, becoming leaner. Mm-hmm. Once I moved out to, or once I joined the center for sport here, they put me on a pretty decent weight program where it was three times a week, an hour and a half in the weight room with a trainer, a um, lot of squats, a lot of, uh, explosion, uh, exercises, jump squats, uh, jump deadlifts that kind of stuff. And then out west, they have a, a very nice facility. And still, it was only three times a week in the weight room. And that's in season? In season or off season? Off season would be probably an hour and a half, three times a week. In season, you might be 45 minutes, less actual weights, more um, free movements, more sled pulling, lower weight, more intensity. Okay, cool. Um, so I want to go back to, like you said, after high school, you're around like 300 pounds or so. Um, so where were you as you got to be more and more competitive and you probably, probably didn't have like, uh, uh, body fat percentage test done or anything like that around high school, but 
when it was like when you were getting closer to like you know peak physical condition what what did your weight drop down to what were you know what were you at the first season i moved out i was uh, a wee bit broke so i was living on pancakes from costco mm, you can pancakes. eat for about 35 cents a day on that big bag <laughs> um so i got down to about 198 that was less than stellar that was a little light for me on the pancake diet <laughs> on a pancake diet so that, that that's two meals a day of pancakes okay um one of them you can use syrup because that's yeah. like 10 cents then <laughs> uh, <laughs> for the third meal you know you can get a can of campbell soup or something and maybe some protein uh you can mix protein powder in the pancakes too you know just that very true yes yeah, yeah, you can do all kinds of stuff with that stuff yeah. um so that was probably less than stellar about 207 is where I probably competed the best. And then I would have seasoned closer to 215, 218. Cool. All right. So um, what, were your, what were your thoughts about moving to Victoria to pursue your spot on the Olympic team? So you're leaving pretty well everything behind at home. Did it worry you or bother you at all? Or, you know, what was going through your head at that time? Well, to me, it was just like at that point I was in school, so I didn't have anything to do during the summer and it seemed like a fun adventure to move out there for four months and play rowing um <laughs> it was never about moving out for the to move to the olympics or anything else it was more as an experience at the end i didn't think i would make the team so i was pretty sure i would be back in september and yeah it was just an adventure it was a holiday so you didn't have you just wanted to go and do it to do it. it. There was no like expectations from it or anything like that. Just go and go and train all day, every day. I was 29 years old. The average age on the team, most people were retiring when they were 27. <laughs> most people on the team were 21, 22, and like had already a distinguished career. They had gone through the junior national program. They had gone through the under 23 program. They had come from places that actually can row more than four months a year. Um, they had the support networks. Yeah, I I was realistic about it. I I didn't believe I had any chance. So you're you're definitely an outlier. I know one of our uh, one of our coaches here um, at Stark, Joe. He does uh, drug testing for a lot of the Canadian Canadian athletes, and uh, he was he was saying, yeah, there's this one guy, Kevin Cole. Like he goes. You know, usually he, he follows people's careers because he starts testing them young if they're going through, like, the junior program and stuff like that. He's like, out of nowhere, it's like, go test this guy at, like, you know, 5.30 in the morning or whatever and uh, and just show up at his door. And and um, I'm like, yeah, that's that's my buddy, Kevin. <laughs> and uh, he said, like, usually you, you hear about these people, like, as they're growing up and, and training and you follow them through the years and you're testing them through the years. And it's like... Yeah, this guy's like, you know, a pretty high-level athlete. He's like 26, and Joe's like, he wasn't even on the radar before or anything like that. So that's that's kind of kind of a cool thing. So definitely an outlier, and, you know, I guess, you know, sometimes you hear age is just a number. So, um, you know, definitely you've, you've proven that. So, so you picked up and moved to Victoria to become a full-time athlete. What was that change like compared to, like, being here, working full-time, um, you know, having the responsibilities at home and, and all that fun stuff. Oh, it, it was it was the best thing ever. <laughs> like, I think that actually helped was I knew what the real world was like. So when I got into the bubble, um, 
I did not want to leave. So I was going to put my claws in there in any way, shape, or form I could. It was just, you had one goal, and everybody was fighting for that same goal and fighting each other, which is a lot of fun. And at any point, if you stop fighting or you can't prove your worth, you just are asked to leave. <laughs> so... Thanks for coming out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, some of it was pretty harsh. Like, we got back from one trip, and everyone's like, hey, we're so-and-so and so-and-so. And after three days, the coach was like, I had a discussion with them. I told them they could continue rowing, just not here. <laughs> and we never saw them again. It was really, like, they just moved out in the middle of the night. That was it. Hmm. So it was great to be, like, it seems like it's high pressure, but at the same time, it makes you kind of alive you you know as long as you're there you're you're in the bubble you've got a shot yeah so it just yeah having a full-time job before and like i said just put it into perspective of how great they have it and then um so what were your days like you're now a full-time athlete um you know training training pretty much all day every day what is what was your schedule like and and timelines there well, I, I never understood it because here in Winnipeg, it was always wake up at 5.30, go row early before work and everything else. Out there, you know, like 8.30 was first push off. You had to be at the start line for 9 a.m. You know, you row for an hour and a half, you get off the water, they feed you, and then you got like an hour to lie around, and then you just go back on the water again for another hour. And So that was the 10 o'clock. You get off at 11. You go home, you nap for two and a half hours. You know, you don't have to go to a day job. You just nap. You make yourself a nice, great lunch. Then you go to the gym for whatever it is, an hour and a half plus an erg for another hour. So then you're done by, erg would be rowing machine. Uh, you're done by six o'clock. So your days are kind of nine to six, five, six days a week. And then Sundays are, you're done by noon. So it was, you know, it's a sport. It's a hobby. It's great. You know, that's all you do. So you were so you were training seven days a week still. Yeah, you didn't have one day off. No, they they Sunday was lighter. Yeah, yeah. And I think Wednesday, Wednesday they also let us off at two thirty, so that was a, considered a half day. But the math doesn't work out. No, I remember. I remember you saying one time that um, I I had asked you about cross training, and you had said something to your coach about that, and your coach had said cross training is that something you do when you're angry <laughs> <laughs> so there the who who i don't know is it is it spracklin or something yeah is that i think the spracklin name? said yeah. that one okay so yeah i remember you saying that and it's just i thought it was kind of funny but uh he didn't he didn't believe a whole lot in, in cross training and strength training for rowing you know the, the part that i don't get is that there i was working out like 10 hours a day and then for fun, I actually signed up for a kickboxing class in Victoria. <laughs> like, yeah, for 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock at night, I'd go kickboxing. Nothing to do. That was kind of downtime. <laughs> nice. That well, was cross-training. That was, yeah. Took out some aggression and stuff like that. So what was the toughest part about being a full-time athlete? Injuries. Um, like I said, you always had to perform. And as soon as you started to have an injury you started doing mental calculations in your head of whether or not you could push through or whether or not you could actually be diagnosed with something like a broken bone and, you know, get some downtime. 
if you couldn't get diagnosed with something or the doctor couldn't find something wrong with you, then you were just making an excuse and you were likely to get cut. So you were always walking a very fine line of whether or not your ribs were going to pop or not. Yeah, I remember a few conversations that we had on the phone when you were out there and you were saying that your ribs were like killing you and I like, you know, I'm like, you can't talk to your coach and say anything and you're like, yeah, I can, but then, you know, they'll say goodbye. <laughs> like, yeah, like it, they weren't that heart, heartless. Like if you could get uh, a health professional to sign off that you had something actually wrong, they would put you on light duty. So, you know, instead of doing eight hours in the boat, you would only have to do six hours on a spin bike. Um, but, you know, ribs are a real issue out there, especially when you're overtraining like that. Uh, they did start to implement, once Spracklin left, they did start implementing some cross-training. We got to go swimming once a week. Uh, I think we started cycling twice a week. It was good. So why ribs? I'm not a medical professional. My What was kind of explained to me was that uh, your ribs are fluid. They, they flex, they bend, and they're hinged at the back. Once you start getting some spasming in the back and that, that rib starts to lock up, you start overcompensating on the other side. So it, it almost always progresses the opposite side, the original injury. And... Um, that side gets overused, that side gets locked up, and then just the expansion of your lungs constantly against them causes a stress fracture. Nice. So it's not from having the ores or anything coming in contact with them or anything like that? It's just like... No, it's a straight-up fatigue, like crack. It's just constant use, constant pressure, a lot of torque. Okay. All right. So what were, uh, what were some of the mental challenges that go along with, with being an Olympic hopeful or like a high-level athlete on the rowing team? Well, I don't know how it is with other sports, but with rowing it was don't count you're going to any competition, including the Olympics, until you're on the plane going to the Olympics. Um, so one of the hard ones was dealing with the parents, trying to explain to them like, hey, I know I say I'm going to the Olympics, but I might not be and tickets are expensive, so don't buy them because... I don't really want to let you down. <laughs> so that was always difficult. Um, yeah. So, like, was that, was it tough dealing with that on a, you know, on a daily basis? Or I know as Olympics are coming up, things get a little bit more real, I'm sure. And, um, you know, just having a spot in the boat. I remember having a conversation one time where um, you were saying that, you know, coaches would say something to you like, hey, like, you're doing great, and I really want you in this boat and on this team and blah, blah, blah. And then they'll go and say to your, you know, competition the exact same thing. So it's like they're pitting you against each other and not, you know, I, I would think, you know, if you're, if you're working with a coach, you want them to be honest with you and be like, hey, like, here's where, you know, you need to work, uh, work on so-and-so might be doing this a little bit better or whatever, but just being honest with you and, and um, you know, letting you know exactly what's going on rather than kind of trying to start. I, don't, I can't think of a better word for it than cat fights. <laughs> Everything there, um, for me at least, had a duality nature. Um, on one hand, these are your teammates, right? Especially if you're in sweep, if you're on one side, you pretty much can be friends with everybody who's on the other side of the boat. So if you're right-handed rowing, you can be friends with everyone who's left-handed rowing because hopefully you won't be fighting for a seat there. 
but in sculling, pretty much it's always fluid. Anyone can take anyone else's seat. But you also have to rely on them in the boat when you're racing with them to be a good teammate. The coaches were sort of the same. They, some were very good at walking that line of keeping everyone in that gray area where they're not too full of themselves but not too depressed that they can't perform. Other coaches tried to be take the more honest approach. Um, to be honest, I think I like the, the gray one better where you're just keeping them right at the optimum level and not letting anyone get too far ahead of themselves or too far behind. Okay. No. Um, so when you're, when you're, you know, a carded, uh, athlete, um, you do receive some like monthly monetary incentive for your training as part of the team. So how, how is that beneficial to you as an athlete? Like you weren't working at all full time when you were training, um, training full time out in Victoria, What's what's it? What's the the lavish lifestyle of <laughs> of a carded athlete like? Um, so a D level card at my time was nine hundred dollars a month. Rent at Victoria was six hundred dollars a month. So that left me three hundred dollars a month. Lots of pancakes. Yeah, that left me three hundred dollars <laughs> a month for pancakes. You're expected to eat about seven thousand to ten thousand calories a day. So that's three to five times what a normal person would eat. You're also expected not to eat junk, right? You kind of need... Hot, high quality. Well, a decent level of protein, a decent level of this. So you can't just go and go eat at restaurants, although you'd go broke quick there. Mm -hmm. um, it was funny because at one point I managed to uh, do some uh, shrub, uh, shrub cutting or arborist um, work on the side, but I couldn't let the coach know because <laughs> if you had any side job, that meant your heart wasn't in rowing, so you would probably get cut. So... Um, yeah, that was to supplement the income. But yeah, so nine hundred dollars a month doesn't go far when you you got to eat like a horse and you're living in Victoria. So the coach is like riding by on his bike. He's like, that guy in the bush looks like Kevin. That's so wow. That's strange. Yeah, yeah, I definitely had nightmares about that. I wore a hat close over my eyes, but <laughs> rowers are kind of distinctive. We kind of yeah. stand out. You're probably wearing your your uni while you're doing it too. <laughs> tips that didn't help <laughs> okay so 900 bucks to live on and, and like 600 dollars a month rent which is still pretty reasonable because you were living with a, a bus driver out there right yeah yeah he had a great house uh, his situation didn't make sense to me but if he wanted to rent me room uh there for that price it was really you probably could get it cheaper but in the end um paying the premium allowed me to walk to the lake and uh, so I didn't need a vehicle at all. So that saves you money in the, in the long run, you know, versus, well, every time I had to do the budget, the vehicle came out as the biggest expense. So cutting that made a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So, um, you talked about like eating, you know, eating five to 7,000 calories a day. Um, seven to 10, seven to 10. Was it seven to 10? Oh man. Okay. Um, so anyways, like, were you given any specific like diets to follow or anything like that? Or was it just general recommendations or was it just like feed yourself as much as you want? We were told to eat until you're full and then eat another half. Uh, so eat 150, <laughs> eat a hundred percent until you're full and then eat another 50%. Um, some guys just took to pouring olive oil over everything that actually builds up. up. Yeah. That builds up your calories. Your mouth would actually get sore from chewing. Like, 
I know it sounds ridiculous, but you were eating so much that your jaw would get sore. Um, some people would eat equal parts butter to bread by volume. So if you have a piece of bread that's three-quarter inch thick, you put three-quarter inches of butter on top of that, and away you go. Yeah, so there's lots of tricks. They had dietitians work with us, but some of their advice was... <laughs> was was what, Kev? <laughs> well, come on. Eat 100% and then eat another 50% on top of that. Uh, and then quinoa. Oh. They always had the flavor of the week, so that kind of took away from some of the credibility when they prescribed the same thing to gain weight as they did to lose weight to the next guy. <laughs> so. Yeah. Eat quinoa to gain weight. Just eat less of it to lose weight. <laughs> okay. Yeah, basically eat quinoa. Um, so what kind of physical shape did you feel like you were in while training? 100% machine all the time, battered, broken, bruised? Destroyed. Destroyed? Oh, at all points. It was just, everything was always constantly sore and tired. No. And oh, you sleep so good. <laughs> like your hour cat nap was better than most na naps I get now and most sleeps. Like... You hit the bed. By the time your head even touches that pillow, you are unconscious. Conscious. You had to set like two alarms just to get up at the, in an hour. It was great. So like you started every day, like you woke up every morning sore and just like, you know, was it certain areas or just below the neck and above the ankles or what? <laughs> the good days, it was everything. Um, the bad days where the ribs were rolling out of bed where it was... Uh, a thought-out process, you know, propping yourself up on your right elbow, rolling over left arm. Like, you couldn't put any pressure on that side. And then you'd go and row. It was absolutely ridiculous. The, I still remember when the coach pulls me over, she's like, you're, you're rowing differently, Kevin. What's, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, it, it, it kind of hurts. She's like, where does it hurt? <laughs> Everywhere. Oh, I can keep going, but it, it only hurts when I breathe. And she looks at me, she's like, <laughs> well, that could be an issue. Yeah. Uh, that was a rib. <laughs> might, might be doing a little breathing today. Yeah, yeah, you're probably going to have to keep doing that. So, so you're out there, you're training full-time, you're going to, you know, high-level competitions around the world, so it must have been pretty amazing to travel all over the world and, and race in places you've never visited Um before and and you get to go as a part of team canada so you know what are some of the most memorable places you've been to uh bled bled was pretty awesome and uh where's bled slovenia okay um absolutely gorgeous never heard of the place they had the world championships there and it's it's like a warm bamf <laughs> the, the water is that blue deep blue and it's warm enough to swim on the it's a a lake about two kilometers long, 800 meters wide. And right in the middle of the lake is this island that this 800 uh, AD monastery was built on. And it's just fantastic. And overlooking the, the course is a sheer cliff that looks to be maybe 200 meters high. And on top of the cliff is a castle. Like, it's like right out of a fairy tale, you know? You got monastery in the middle of a lake with a castle just sitting up in the sky and yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing place, that one. Um, Did you get to, like, travel around and look around, or was it all, like, business when you were there? Well, the great thing is you're, you're kind of on that taper, so um, you have some free time because normally you're training all the time, and you have a ridiculous amount of free energy that you're not allowed to spend. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so there was no running up hills or anything, even though you wanted to. Like, 
It's like feeding a kid sugar, putting an athlete on taper. <laughs> Even the personalities changed. It was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, they gave us time to wander around. And then it was always nice because at the end of the season, your, your last race, they would let you decide when to book your ticket home. So if you were in Europe or South Korea or something, you could be, you could just say, you know, give me three weeks in that location and then I'll fly home. And you could wander around on your own backpacking or whatever on a free plane ticket. That's awesome. So with, um, with being in some of those places, how are you, how are you treated when you were there to compete from, I don't know, like, did you have a lot of exposure to, to the other, other teams or the organizing, you know, bodies out there or anything like that? It's kind of like a high school competition, you know, everybody's, you know, every country, you probably got for all the countries three or four hotels that they're all staying in, or the majority of them are staying in. So typically you're in a hotel and, you know, you can go find uh, Bulgaria or Australia or New Zealand is somewhere in there. So you're staying with your competition. Everybody's eating in the hotel restaurant, you know, and they all got their, they've all given their special request to the cook and everybody gets it. But fact of the matter is you're eating across the table from your comp or eating across the room from your competition. So were you pretty friendly or was it like dirty looks and stare downs while you're eating? There's enough categories that like you wouldn't exactly go hang out with the crews that you're racing, but yeah. the different categories were well Buy home enough. drinks. <laughs> well, <laughs> that I before the race. Before the race, I yeah. would have been willing for that one. But um, yeah, it was neat because even at one competition they had uh, food poisoning. And since they're all in the same hotel, like four, <laughs> four teams went down with it. <laughs> awesome. So that was less than stellar. And even for the Olympics, they were worried about that. So they, they had the Canadian team isolated just so uh, we didn't have any contamination. And on, a, on that note, my coach managed to get the flu or influenza. <laughs> and legitimately, she was there in the morning. And the next day, we're looking for her. And they're like, oh, no, we pulled her out of the hotel. Like, didn't say bye, didn't tell us nothing, just the next day she's gone. I remember didn't you Didn't see her for a week. <laughs> and they're like, well, how am I going to get down to the Olympic course? And they give me a set of keys. It's like, uh, <laughs> I think they drive funny over here. Take the car. <laughs> Take the van, yeah. Okay. So you're probably like jet lagged, out of your routines, different food, different places to sleep. So how did that affect your performance when you got on the water? They were incredibly regimented with that kind of thing, like... They knew the jet lag was about two weeks max, most people 10 days. They would fly us into Italy. Um, anytime we were in Europe, they'd fly us in early to Italy. We'd hang out there. We'd get over the jet lag. Even that was a very strict program. Like As soon as you got off the plane, they'd get you to the hotel. Straight up was a lunch. Even though you're dead tired and on a different time zone, you'd go be forced to do an hour row. You weren't allowed to change anything in your boat for 48 hours because... Things are just going to feel different, and they'd have you do training sessions. They wouldn't make too many judgments on you for at least seven days, and then uh, by the time the competition hit, you were already in Europe for three weeks. So that was always nice. They very structured that way, um, and even they would practice that type of system, that type of taper back home. They would practice it for the World Cups. They would practice it for the World Championships. By the time you got to the Olympics, you were just used to bang, 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 and that's the way it was. That routine stayed the same, so there wasn't much yeah, much to get much, used to or a change or anything? No deviation. Cool. Consistency kills. 
So did you have a, a consistent pre-race routine that you'd follow before every race, like something that you did, whether it was like here in Winnipeg, Victoria, like if you're traveling all over the world? I uh, used the washroom once. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was always a big thing. Just though. once. <laughs> well, when, you, when, you, when you're in the boat, you know, you can't really do much. So yeah. you probably want to do that before you push off. And yeah. you're probably going to have, you know, you got a half an hour warm up, 45 minute warm up. And then you got seven and a half minute race, and then you have, you know, half an hour cool down or twenty minute cool down. So you're out there for a good two hours. So you, you really want to make sure you use that before you get in there. <laughs> Understandable. It's not like a it's not like a marathon where you can run into the bushes or anything like that. Or like, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. No, I'm I'm not a big one for superstition. Um, it just was whatever I was told to do. That's what I was to do, and. They had a special routine with swishing beet juice through your teeth or something. That was what I did. <laughs> okay. But nothing like warm-up specific or anything like that that you did to kind of get mentally prepared or get into that mental state before getting in the in the boat? Oh, I'm always ready to go. Always ready to go. <laughs> always ready to go. Born to born to do it. Um, so walk us, walk us through a race from start to finish. Like, are, do they differ a whole lot or cause all your races are 2k, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah, all the Olympic or world championship races are 2k. 2K. So that's, and then how much, how much time would that take? Whether you're, so say you're, you're just in a single by yourself. About seven and a half minutes. Seven and a half minutes is a single. Okay. And then um, just to kind of put that into perspective, so what is what is a fast, your fastest 2K row time on an erg, on a rowing machine? 550. 550. Okay. So the water does slow you down a little. <laughs> I think the, row, the rowing machine is kind of calibrated for an eight, in which would be a different speed. So it's kind of considering all eight guys pulling a certain <laughs> level of resistance, certain level of weight work. Clearly, on the upper end of the weight, weight would add resistance to the boat. Right. The rowing machine's only measuring how much you're pulling, not all the other factors. Right. So, so. no wind, no water resistance, anything like that. No checking. Rowing is kind of neat in that um, if you look at the instantaneous velocity of the boat, it has a quite a defined peak, and then if you're really poor at it, it can actually have negative velocity at a certain point in the stroke. So your boat can go from 15 kilometers an hour to negative one, hmm. all within one stroke. Um, the rowing machine at no point takes into account the, what you're doing when you're not pulling. Mm -hmm. um, the flywheel's still spinning. And the flywheel still spins. You can smash it into the cage or you can be graceful. It doesn't care. Yeah, and your oars can get stuck in the water and mess you up pretty good too if you're <laughs> rowing. And on the erg, you, you don't have that effect. Yeah. So okay, so once again, you're on the you're on the erg. You said five what for five fifty five fifty for a two k row, um, and then uh, on on the water you said seven thirty ish. Uh, like I had one or two that broke seven, but like it totally depends on the wind conditions, the wave conditions. Like I've seen in a really crappy one, I've had an eight thirty where you're just fighting not to swim. No. Um, and the waves kind of a cross wave checking you and stuff. You know, nice tailwind with almost zero wi waves. You can just clip. Okay. So then, what would what would a really good time be um, for you, like in a in a double skull, like when you went to London? You're looking at about 15 seconds off the single time. 
15 seconds off the single, so like 7.15-ish. Yeah. Something like that. Okay, cool. So walk us through a race from start to finish. So you get in the boat, you line up, and go. The different coaches would have you... I, I had the... Uh, the experience of multiple coaches. Um, I guess I came at a transitional period for rowing Canada where I got to experience four different coaches. Um, each one would hammer in their idea of a race plan or mentality that would go through your head. On one, it was, uh, the simplest one was the, the horn goes, go all out, and then uh, go all, all out some more go all out like you're going to burst, and then you pass the 500-meter mark and repeat four times. Uh, that one worked real well, unless you crashed. Uh, the other ones had more defined plans where it was, you know, you have 17 seconds to go before you start producing lactic acid. So, you know, your first 10 strokes, all out, get it up to pace, lengthen over the next seven to get nice rhythm, fall into your crew within 20 get through the 250 mark, focus, uh, then start having to focus every 300 meters or so, 400 meters, just to unify the crew. So if everyone concentrated on the same thing, you'd normally see a, a pretty good uh, payback. I guess it, it's all about being in unison. Um, in my single, I would do the same. I would do mental calls like check hands, uh, clean out, or, um, you know, blade placement just and all you do for the next 10 strokes where it was focused on blade placement and then you kind of have 20 strokes before the next call to use up all your energy so you just break it down and focus on like one thing at a time and then go to go to something else or yeah like, like personally i would lie to myself the whole race i would just tell myself okay we're gonna go we're just gonna finish this next 20 strokes we're just gonna get to that next buoy the buoys were every 250 meters and Okay. As long as I got to that buoy, I was just going to shut her down there and, you know, so be it. At least I, I had a first good 200 or then I, at least I had a first good 500. Then I'd get to the buoy and I'd lie to myself again and say, well, you know, we're just going to go to the next buoy and, you know, let's just focus on this 250 here. And when I get to that buoy, we're just going to shut her down and, you know, maybe I'll lead the race until then or maybe I'll crash. And But we're going to shut her down to the next buoy and then we get there and, okay, let's just focus on our hands for 10 things and get to the next buoy. and <laughs> Repeat. So what, when you say shut her down, like... like ah, give up. Yeah, give quit. Up. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Even on the erg. Like, if I'm doing a 5K piece, I, I got, got in my head that all I'm doing is 1,000 meters. We're going to quit at 1,000 meters. And at 950 meters, I start making a new deal for another 1,000 meters. <laughs> so it's a, there's a lot of mental negotiation going on. That's interesting that you're like, you know, that you're, you're like just wanting to get to that next point and you're like, oh, I'll quit when I get there sort of thing. But you... But you don't. <laughs> See, I, I feel like the philosophy works with rowing. Um, rowing, you're facing the opposite direction you're going. You never look into the distance to see where the finish line is. It's two kilometers away. If you ever look down the course, it's like, oh, my God, I got to go that far. Yeah. Right? But if you're always looking back and you're like, all right, all right, I got 500 meters done. Oh, that's not too bad. And then you're like, oh, I'm halfway. Well, you know, I'm halfway. It's, you know, glass half full type deal. Like, oh, I can keep going. So you're always kind of just concentrating on the moment, on what's the immediate. You're not, you don't look at the whole project. You break it down into manageable chunks and okay. just focus on that manageable chunk and then renegotiate for the next one. <laughs> okay. If that works, that's awesome. Um, 
Yeah, and I guess people got to figure out what what works for them. Because if you're running a marathon, you're like just one more mile, and then I'm going to stop. Well, you can you can stop if you want, but a lot of uh, renegotiation going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you're talking about uh, passing the boys, do they do they actually say how many meters you're at, or you've you've already passed, or you just know that it's 250 meters? Like, do you forget? Like, because I'm I'm sure you're working pretty hard. You're you're you know. I know when I've done like a 2K time trial myself, I'm like 500 meters left and I'm like, I'm either going to throw up or pass out or both. Yeah, so, but then you sprint. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and no, and, and that's what I've done. But um, I've got this monitor in front of me that's like, you know, tells you how many meters you got left. And it's like, sometimes I've just got my eyes closed and I'm just pulling. But with, um, with you on the water, like, do those boys have numbers on them? So you're like, okay, I'm like, you know... 1,750 meters to go. Woohoo! Like Most, um, I guess I got different buoy colors for the first 100 meters. The 250 is just uh, like a post. The 500s typically have a number. The 1,000 has a number. Okay. Um, and then I think the last 300 is a different color as well. So you're not having to do math and be like, how many boys did I pass? Did I pass three green boys or four? <laughs> like, I've also had it where I've totally missed, like, I don't know, somehow I just missed 500 meters of a course right like okay you still know when you're at the finish line i just don't remember or perhaps i forgot to look that we were moving that i don't know i thought we were at the thousand we were actually at the 1500 um which made it much better because then you only had five meters left so i didn't have to i only had to renegotiate three times not four (laughs) so so you're, you're going through the race how does it work like with um you know You've got someone in your bar, uh, boat, like uh, when you're in the doubles. Like, do you both talk about it and decide, you know, what's going to happen? Does the person in the back feed off the person in the front because they can see them, or like, how do you know when to when to turn it off? Because you, your strokes need to be like in tune with each other, right? Otherwise, it's not going to work too well. Um, yeah, the guy in the front, the bow, we'll call him. Um, he gets to be like the captain. He's he should be the only one talking in the boat. Uh, he makes calls not very often because, you know, talking takes oxygen. <laughs> yeah. You need oxygen for other things like muscles. Um, the guy in the back, we'll call him the stroke, he's more uh, in charge of the rhythm. He sets the rhythm for the boat. His body positioning needs to be emulated um, or followed. So how do you do that? Like, you're in the front of the boat. You don't see what the person in the back's doing. Sorry, front of the boat, I mean as in the front oh, of the boat. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so you're facing backwards. So yeah. the guy in the front is actually facing the guy in the back. The guy in the back is just facing the back back. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yep. Kind of makes sense. Yep. Confusing sport. Yeah. Okay. Oh. So after the race, you pass the finish line or it's like, give us like the last 500 meters. Hazy. Just goes hazy. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much hazy. Um, desperation on not getting past. Uh, Yeah. Always desperation. Uh, just pour it all in. And because, uh, you know, like you're looking backwards. So if you're, you're ahead of someone, you can see them moving on you. And you just, you know, you want to hold on. Yeah. That's what we did. Now, are you looking like side to side or are you just using allowed. your peripheral? Oh, they get mad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they get mad. Because, again, like it throws you off. energy. And it's also yeah. like rowing is also a part of a balance. You, you're in a boat. That's. I don't know, I think they're 10 and a half inches wide for the single. They're 14 inches wide for the double. Like, they're not incredibly wide. They're very tippy. 
mm-hmm. any movement that isn't linear or symmetrical just throws it off. Throws it off. So it's really best just to um, stare straight back and look uh, look out of the corners of your eyes. Yeah, just use that peripheral vision. Awesome. Uh, and then once you cross that finish line, well. Personally, I always wanted to lie down because my glutes just burned. Like, <laughs> I mean, my ass hurt, and those seats are hard. Yeah. Um, but we were told that that was inappropriate or uh, not cool or sportsmanlike. So Laying down, just, really? Yeah. Okay. So then you just sit there in pain, and you know, you, some people want to, you know, sit and relax, and other people like me just, you know, I need to row it out and get get the muscle keep going even at a low intensity. Otherwise, it's just like. Get that lactic yeah. acid out of the clear Just it out. Burns like you know, like sitting on a fire. You know, <laughs> it's not pleasant. No. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's go on to the the 2012 London Olympics. So how did you how did you find out you were going and that you you made it into the boat? I got on a plane. That was it, it. was going to London. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to Italy first, but they, they promised me eventually it would get to London. Yeah, but how did you, did, you know, someone just come up and tell you? Did you get a letter? Did you, like, you know, how, how did that happen? It's all, uh, there's ranking, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you see that the boat you're in is, you know, they were racing us against another double, another two guys, and all of a sudden we were getting sent over to camps, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to Toronto for a meet and greet for the Olympics. And it's like, hey, <laughs> maybe I'm going. <laughs> but you're never sure until you get on the plane to actually... Yeah. Get into Europe. Cool. So, so you know, you get your plane ticket and, you know, what were your initial thoughts? You're packing, you're getting ready to go. Oh, I'm going to get free stuff. <laughs> free clothes. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and glasses. And well, we already had glasses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was it. That was, that was your initial thoughts. Well, yeah, I really hope that we got cool clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like, holy shit, like I've been busting my ass training and like, you know, moved from Winnipeg, which may or may not have been exciting. But um, no, just like any, anything other than getting cool free stuff. <laughs> oh, I was going to get to see the Olympic Village. That was, that was, I was kind of excited. Okay. <laughs> All right. So opening ceremonies, you're, you're there, like you're, you know, it's, it's probably going to happen. <laughs> you're walking around there. So we didn't get to go to the opening ceremonies. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we had to race the next day and they're like, hmm, hour and a half train ride into London, uh, hour and a half prep time getting into the parade. Yeah. And then like, what is it? I don't know. Two hours, three hours of standing around in the middle of the arena. That's great for legs. Yeah. Like if you're going to be racing and you need your legs, let's go stand around and not move for a while. Probably a smart choice. Yeah, so they didn't let us go. No. Uh, so, but at that point, we kind of, we'd already trained on the uh, Olympic venue a couple times, and we were pretty confident since they had already sent the other boat home that we were the guys. Cool. <laughs> they sent the others home. Sorry, guys. You're done. Here's your tickets back. Um, so did you get to go to the closing ceremonies then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? yeah. And then, so what was that like? <laughs> um. It's really more for the spectators. Uh, the sound was all aimed at the bleachers. We couldn't even tell which bands were playing. Um, so we managed to uh, smuggle in a couple two fours into the center there. Nice. 
So once we got those in, that, that was kind of funny. Actually, one guy almost got hit by the Spice Girls running across the track with a, his jean jacket over a 2-4. Um, <laughs> so he gets that across. Then we all share that. But there's, like, a lot of people. So he only got, like, a couple of beer. Um, so that made it better. But honestly, you're watching these cars drive around and look, hey, that kind of looks like the Spice Girls. Or um, I forget who else was there. But you couldn't even hear them. Yeah. So eh, it was neat and it was kind of fun for a while. But then it got kind of boring because you're just standing there watching stuff yeah. happen. Okay. So what was it like um, being an athlete village, which is, you know, you're, you're with all the fittest athletes in the world in their respective sports. How, uh, what was that like? Did you see anyone that, uh, any, any big name athletes or anything like that? And you're like, oh, that's, you know, Simon Whitfield or that's like, you know, so-and-so. And The U.S. basketball team came in uh, one day into the... I guess they were staying off site, so they came into the what's that place where you eat? Uh, mess hall. Mess hall. There we go. Okay. I'm sure, there's a better term for it, but um, so they came into there. So that was kind of neat seeing them. They were tall. <laughs> Strangely, the the Russian team actually seemed a lot taller. Like yeah. These skinny white guys that are like oh, bean poles. Nice. But yeah, it's uh, it again puts it's a little humbling. Like you see all these big names and all these Olympians walking around and it's a, a unique atmosphere. No. Yeah. So was there a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of people walking around with chips on their shoulders or were they kind of like, you know, was everyone really approachable and like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm among, you know, fittest athletes in the world here. And, and, um, I don't know, was everyone pretty easygoing or how did, would you feel like out there? Different countries use the uh, Olympic Village in different ways. Um, I think the Americans would come in, do their event, and then as soon as they were done, they got pulled out. Oh, yeah. The Canadians were the opposite. Like, we didn't get to go to the Olympic Village until our event was over. Yeah. Um, so everyone was kind of on different wavelengths, and you had to be respectful that, like, such and such athlete, like, could be competing the next day. So, like, yep. you know, make sure you're not approaching or too loud or crazy. Um some countries were great, you know. You go uh, go drinking with the Australians or something, or um, the Netherlands. They were pretty cool. Uh, other countries were very standoffish and would uh, pretty much remain to themselves. And then, did you guys, as a, as a Canadian team, like, did all the rowers pretty much like hang out and travel and do everything together, or did you guys have time apart, or how did that work? When you're living with these guys in Victoria, you're pretty much part of a bubble. Um, so you kind of get tired of each other, or at least I did. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they got tired of me. Yeah. Um, I can't see that happening. Yeah, it was really, like, we looked it up once. Uh, there was 13 things that made a cult, and uh swear to God, we, we were fully in for 12 of them, uh, besides the financial gain, which nobody seems to be getting ahead. Um, so we were, like, really stuck together uh, semi-forcibly, so I think by the time the competition was done, a couple of people hung out together, but most just kind of went their own ways. Well, while you were there, what were the uh, what were the events like? You know, just was it like when you were traveling and and going to the worlds and stuff like that, or was it just a lot? Was it a lot more? I don't know what's what's the word I'm looking for. Um, so the. The World uh, Championships, or sorry, the World Cup for that year, they actually, 
had lined everything up, including the event times and the schedule, to be the same as uh, the Olympics. All your routines were set super hard. Um, so by the time you actually got to the starting gate of the Olympics, I don't know if it... I know it phased my partner pretty heavily. Um, to me, it was the same as the world championships. Like, you were there to race, and you didn't really notice. I don't even think I heard the crowd, like, during the race. It was, you know, it's just... I'm very... in internal person so a lot of it was I guess internal conversations and I guess I might scream at myself in my head I don't know I just didn't hear much but your race course is two kilometers long too right so and they're always two kilometers they're always yeah. dead straight yeah there's always the similar buoys um there's always a coach or a umpire boat following the race mm-hmm. uh your times are the same your preps the same your warm-ups the same your cool downs the same your getting tested for drugs is the same um. yeah, everything's lined up to be the same. They limited the amount of uh, social media time we had before our events. Mm-hmm. They limited the amount of uh, internet time. They really limited the amount of away from the hotel time. Like, they pretty much just confined us to the floor. Um, while we were competing, you know, you got maybe two hours a day to go wander around, or if you weren't racing that day, you might be able to pull off an afternoon, but you were pretty much just like any other world championships, just there to compete. So you ha- you were in a double. Um, you were relying on another individual for 50% of your performance. How, how does that affect you? <laughs> um, it's tough, uh, depending on how your relationship is with the person you're relying on and your, uh, your faith in them. Um, me and my partner had not been together that long. Uh, ironically, we were roommates for a year, but I had chosen him as a roommate because I never thought I would be in a boat with the man. Hmm. Um, and then in the end, we end up in the boat together. Uh, and we had very different perspectives on uh, competitive events. So it was uh, it was hard, very hard, because I know when everything goes wrong in my race or my life, I just put my head down and go harder and smash through. Mm-hmm. Uh, my partner was more of the type who likes to reassess and try to uh, finesse or uh, fix things through intelligence, I guess, or smartness. I don't know. Um, so reassess and get back better technique, maybe pull off some power and bring back the mental side. Whereas for me, it was put my head down and go. So those two techniques didn't line up that well. Okay. Well, were you, were you happy with your performance there? Um, no, no, it, uh, again, we were a young boat. We hadn't been together that long and we had different philosophies in the end. Our ranking, I was, very disappointed in, um, and it was very tough. So I guess if you, you know, are there many other boats that had been there, you know, previous years and stuff like that, or is, is rowing like, you know, how often do athletes end up going to the Olympics over and over again? Um, like Canada historically has been kind of 
for the men's program at least, the wins have been in the the big boat, the eight. Um, yeah. We've normally stacked it, trained it hard, uh, gone hard at it. We have a good track record with that. That's a sweep boat. Another boat we've done fairly well historically was the four. Mm-hmm. Again, a sweep boat. Um, Sculling Canada doesn't seem to produce. It's more of a European uh, discipline, I guess. Okay. Um, where they're concentrating on. So there hadn't been a double in the Canadian double for quite a while. Um, we didn't have the, I guess, background or history. Um, a lot of the Olympians in the double race had been around for 12 years, had done multiple cycles. We looked down the, the roster and most of them had a, at least one world championship, some multiple, some gold medal Olympians under their belt. Um, world championship win. Mm-hmm. It was kind of neat because it almost seemed like, uh, you know, you know, such and such won eight years ago and they took eight, four years off and now they're back. And it was, you know, it was kind of neat. It was <laughs> in that regard. But on the same note, we definitely weren't experienced in that event. No. So what was your, your biggest takeaway from your Olympic experience? I got my school paid for. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's pretty like, sweet. <laughs> I don't know. It, it certainly changed my life. It changed my perspective on everything. Um, living that life, I would say the Olympics for me was were, were quite anticlimactic. Um, but the journey was second to none. Uh, getting there, like living in that fashion, um, a semi-Spartan existence, we'll call it, uh, or I would call it. Um, with the single goal and living on edge, it was very memorable, very unique. There was times when we're sitting there and you could be, remember that piece, like, I don't know, it was a while ago where such and such made this move and, you know, everybody in the boat could recall it and it was it was neat and it took me a while and what I think it is is that everyone was so on, everyone was so engaged, nobody was on autopilot, mm-hmm. everybody was remembering every detail because everybody was fully there, like... They were putting everything, and to be in that environment where everybody is just putting everything they have into it uh, was such an experience. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so we're going to stop right there for now. Uh, This is going to be a two-part series. So part two of Kevin Kowalik, 2012 London Olympics rower. We'll be on to to finish up. We're going to talk a little bit more about the mental side of training, different coaches um, and, uh, and coaching styles, uh, the Rio Olympics, and um, a bit about the, the afterlife. So if, uh, if you have any questions or if there's any, uh, anyone you want me to try and interview and get on this podcast, uh, please let us know. Uh, you can email us, info at strkestrength.com. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day.